Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, and welcome to Inside Politics Sunday. I'm Manu Raj. One year from today, America will be going to the polls to choose a president. And there are alarm bells going off inside the White House this morning. There are three big polls out about the race for the White House, and none of it is good for Joe Biden. Race for president is decided state by state, not nationally. So this morning, we want to focus on a series of battleground state polls from the New York Times. In Nevada, Trump leads by 10, leads by six in Georgia, five in Arizona, five in Michigan, and four in Pennsylvania. Biden has just a narrow two-point lead in Wisconsin. Now, Biden won all six of those states in 2020 and likely needs to win at least four of them to be reelected. And if you dig a little deeper into the poll, things look even bleaker. Voters in these six states say Biden's policies have hurt them personally. And those numbers are flipped when you ask about Trump. More say Trump's policies has have helped them personally. And then there are huge cracks in the coalition that won Biden the White House in 2020. Yes, he's leading among those demographics, but not by nearly as much as he needs to be. He's ahead of Trump among young voters in these battleground states by one point. Trump wins 22% of black voters, which would be a historically huge measure for a Republican. And the margins are small for Biden among Hispanics and suburban voters. So let's dig into all these numbers and the implications here with CNN's Melanie Zanona, CNN's Daniel Strauss, CNN's Isaac Dover, and Sung Min Kim of the Associated Press. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. And Isaac and several of you have been talking to your sources this morning. But Isaac, I want to talk to, start with you about just what are you hearing about the Biden campaign, how they plan to deal with this? And is this going to prompt any change in strategy? Oh, look, the Biden campaign feels in, in terms of change in strategy, they have a strategy. They're basically sticking with it. The campaign officials that I've spoken with this morning say to me, they know these polls don't look good. But what they say is that at this moment, the negative feelings about Biden are baked into the way people feel about him. They haven't had the chance yet to make the positive argument for him and to get voters to think about that uh, with all the campaigning and advertising they're going to do in the year ahead. They feel like also, when you look at this as a question of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, that a lot of voters, not only are they not clicked into the election yet, but they're not even thinking about Donald Trump as being the nominee. They haven't gotten to that stage of it. And in fact, he may not be the nominee. Mm -hmm. Of course, though, what that means in these numbers might be that if someone other than Trump is the nominee, then all of those negatives that they're hoping will be attached to Donald Trump would not be there in the same way. Mm -hmm. When you talk to other Democrats that are not on the Biden campaign, what they say is they know that Joe Biden is not going to be necessarily the person who's going to excite the voters and electrify the electorate, but that what they need to do is to make this not a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, if that's what it is, but really a choice between two different visions of the country, two, all the consequences that come with it, right. all the things about abortion politics and democracy and all those things are part of it, that's, that's, and, and that and, Joe Biden will be the guy on the ballot. And you mentioned, they keep saying, it's about a contrast. Once voters tune into the contrast, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Biden's famous saying, okay, well, let's talk about these voters in that same New York, New York Times story. They voted for Biden in 2020. 
This is about the voters in that poll story. They say, the world is falling apart under Biden. That's from a voter named Spencer Weiss, who's from Bloomberg, Pennsylvania. He said, I would much rather see somebody that I feel I can be a positive role model leader for the country, but at least I think Trump has his wits about him. And then another person, Travis Waterman from Phoenix, says, I don't think he's the right guy to go toe-to-toe with these world leaders that don't respect him or fear him. He voted for Biden in 2020, but they see him as weak and now prefers Mr. Trump. That same poll says that 71% of voters believe that Biden, who's 80, is too old. Even though he's only four years older than Donald Trump, just 39% of voters believe that Trump is too old to be an effective president. Right, and I think with um, with the liabilities that are facing uh, President Biden right now, obviously some of those liabilities, the campaign can work to change. For example, voter sentiment about the economy, certainly the contrasting effort that they're gonna make. But unfortunately for the Democrats, President Biden is not getting younger. That is the one thing that they cannot reverse. So they really have to kind of set that age issue aside, make light of it. President Biden for months has kind of, first, first of all, two things. He's been making, you know, poking fun at himself and getting laughs out of the crowd that way. Also pointing to age as a sign of wisdom. But that is a vulnerability that is certainly not going to go away and perhaps aggravate as the months go on. I was actually really fascinated in the New York Times poll about how he's doing in Nevada. Because mm-hmm. Nevada is a state that he did win in 2020, uh, probably trending a little bit more blue in recent cycles. But the fact that he's down 10, and again, we are a year out from the mm-hmm. election, but him being down 10 points in that state, I would think, what well, was really certainly raise my eyebrows. And you yeah. know, Nevada didn't look for great in Demo- great for Democrats either. Um, in 2022, obviously, yeah. did well there for the most part. But still, that was really eye-catching. It, absolutely. And what was also eye-catching, just the numbers on the issues. That's what ultimately determines elections, economy, of course, always a central issue. Economy, 59% believe that Trump would do a better job than Biden. 22 more, 22-point favorite on the issue of the economy. And then he leads down the line, only abortion. Biden has a nine-point lead. And also another concern here is that voters under 30 trust Trump better by on, on the economy by 28 points. That is a, a demographic that the Biden campaign needs to come out in droves to help him win. And this is how you know the Biden campaign recognizes fully that the economy is going to be central. They point to the positive numbers and positive signs in the economy. This is how they've messaged it. Today, unemployment is at record lows. Our economy leading the world. Joe Biden passed historic laws to rebuild the country. There are some who say America is failing, not Joe Biden. Look, there are clear economic indicators that things are better in the country. And also they passed a slew of legislation in the first two years. But the challenge is, of course, always are voters feeling it. Right. There's a perception cliche of Democrats, which is that on the economy, they will tell you uh, things are getting better. We've made everything better. And the voters won't feel this. So the the Biden reelection team has to walk a tightrope here. Uh, on the one hand, they have to tout what they've done, but they also have to message at the same time, we know that you're still feeling uh, the, the impacts of a negative economy, of inflation, and we are working to improve that. We still feel your pain. And that's going to be a big, big factor for the Biden reelection campaign to take into account over this next year. And of course, this is all going to prompt the discussion in the, within the Democratic Party about what to do about Biden, whether he's the best candidate for the job. David Axelrod, the uh, Obama advisor, tweeted this morning about whether it's wise for Biden to continue on uh, here as is, is the candidate, even though he will certainly get the nomination, Axelrod says, but 
can he win a general? That's going to be Joe Biden's decision. He said that it would cause tremors among Democrats, this poll, according to Axelrod. Now, there is a candidate in the race that's against uh, Biden, Dean Phillips. He's a congressman from Minnesota. He just entered the race just a few days ago. He has been saying this all along that the polls are bad for Biden and Biden will lose. There's this bizarre and very dangerous culture of silence right. uh, in Washington, uh, in, in certain political industrial complex circles. Uh, that is dangerous. I mean, dangerous. And we are putting blinders on. It'll make 2016 look like a joyful uh, year. So I asked Phillips this morning about this poll. He, he sent me back a message saying, I could offer no statement more powerful than the one made by suffering Americans in this poll. He goes on to say that as a Democratic nominee, he would defeat Trump and pass his bill on Workers' Family Relief Act to address the economic tragedy crushing millions of our neighbors. Do you expect, as we get back, Congress comes back to session this week, the Democrats to be in full-on panic mode, or will they join the Biden campaign and say, it's a year out, everything will be fine? I think privately there's going to be a lot of panic if you're a Democrat right now. I don't know if they're going to say that publicly, but certainly this type of polling does give salience to a Dean Phillips argument. You look at the polling and it says Trump actually loses to a generic Democrat. I think also this type of polling is going to take the wind out of the sails of some of the Republican candidates who are trying to take on Trump, particularly a Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, who have made a huge part of their campaign on this idea that Trump is not electable in the general election and that they are better positioned to beat Joe Biden. But clearly, based on this polling, again, only a year out, not necessarily. Yeah, the true. tricky thing, of course, for Democrats is who would it be in this like fantasy scenario that someone would come in? I had a piece that came up last week about uh, Democrats saying, look, it's time to get on the train. Gretchen Whitmer among the people saying that because they feel like actually all these doubts that they've had over the last year have seeded some of Joe Biden's problems here. And, and so they are going to have to figure out here what they do. Of course, if Joe Biden somehow said he wasn't running, then I think we'd be back here in a couple of weeks having the discussion about the Democrats in disarray, not being able to figure out who could be popular. Yeah. That's the problem that they've got here with Trump continuing to show strength. What's, what's remarkable, of course, is Trump has obviously so many legal problems. He's got four criminal indictments, something we've never seen before. These are very, very serious allegations. Some of these can go to trial before the election. He's going to testify tomorrow in court in a civil fraud trial. And it's all these problems, though, are helping him in the primary. And there don't seem to be hurting him in the general election, according to these polls today. Right. And it could be the argument that a lot of voters, a lot of these swing voters, aren't necessarily tuned into the intricacies of Trump's legal problems. But at least in the primary, he has somehow turned 91 criminal indictments and a host of civil issues into a strength. His messaging has been that they're coming after me because I am fighting for you. He has somehow made his legal problems about the very voters that he is trying to keep in his camp. And it has worked, which is why you are seeing beyond just the, the long loyalty that Republican primary voters have had for Trump. It's why he is continuing to lead in all of the Republican primary early states and all of the polling. The only person that seems to be gaining any traction uh, is Nikki Haley as of late. We'll yeah. see in the Republican and, debate. And she's, still, and she's still, she's still, but she's still significantly 40 far behind. some odd points. Exactly. Behind. I do think the one area that you saw in that polling where Biden is leading on Trump is abortion. And I think on yeah. Tuesday, we're going to get a really clear preview of whether that is still a potent issue for yeah. Democrats. There's elections in Virginia. There's an Ohio ballot initiative on Tuesday. And both parties are testing out their messages. Republicans, for the first time, are actually punching back, trying to actually mm -hmm. respond instead of ignore it. We'll see how that plays out on Tuesday. And it's a, such a good point, because in Ohio, there's a referendum there on abortion to constitutionalize state rights. So far, pro-abortion rights efforts have succeeded.
seen it in six states so far, including in places like Kansas and Kentucky, red states, Virginia, the legislative races. That will be a big test. Abortion is a big issue there. So we'll see. A year out, a lot can happen. The issues could change. We'll see what the candidates do, too. All right. Next, President Biden faces pressure to bridge the growing Democratic divide on the Middle East. And later, my exclusive one-on-one with Congressman George Santos. Hear what he had to say about the calls for his expulsion and the 23 federal criminal charges he's facing. Coming up. Welcome back to Inside Politics Sunday. I want to turn to the Middle East, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to the West Bank today for an unannounced visit to meet with the President of the Palestinian Authority. Now, Blinken has spent the weekend in the region trying to thread the needle between Israel's right to defend itself and growing calls for a ceasefire to stop the suffering in Gaza. Here's how White House's Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer described the meetings just moments ago. A number of the Arab countries are calling uh, for a ceasefire. Secretary Blinken spoke uh, quite clearly uh, to why we believe now is not the time uh, for an overall uh, ceasefire, although we have made clear that we would support and are advocating uh, for humanitarian pauses. But I think underneath that area of disagreement, there is actually a a lot of alignment among the United States and our Arab partners on the fact that we cannot go back to a pre-October 7th mindset. Now, President Biden says there's progress in achieving a humanitarian pause in Gaza. But Israel's airstrikes are not stopping. This video shows the aftermath from a strike this morning. And as the civilian death toll rises, Biden is losing patience in his own party. CNN's Dana Bash asked Senator Bernie Sanders about that moments ago. Israel has a right to defend itself. Hamas has sworn that's what its goal is, is to destroy Israel. they got to deal with that. But there got to be a better way than killing thousands of men, women, and children. So once again... The immediate concern is you got to have a pause in the bombing. you got to take care of the immediate disaster. Sungman, you covered the White House for the Associated Press. You wrote about the outreach uh, to Muslims from the White House this past week. How are they trying to balance? How is the president trying to balance this humanitarian crisis that's happening in Gaza with showing this resolute support for Israel? It is a really difficult line to walk because from October 7th on, they have made clear their staunch staunch support for Israel, Israel's military actions. They've made it clear when we've asked them that they are not going to dictate what Israel's military does. But they say in public, more increasingly in public, and they say they've relayed this uh, sentiment in private, that Israel really does have to keep the the civilian the toll on civilians in mind, and you see that coming as you're seeing growing pressures and growing unease from members of his own party about Israel's actions. I was really struck by Chris Murphy's statement late last week. He is someone who is a defender of the administration when it comes to its foreign policy decisions, and the fact that he said this is you know basically this is going too far. This mm-hmm. is the, there needs to be some sort of a course change. I think that's indicative of what a lot of Democratic lawmakers feeling right now but it is but Israel is an incredibly important issue for President Joe Biden it is an issue with him that goes back decades and it's really hard how do you you know scale that support back without angering your Israeli allies and other people in here who are very supportive of Israel it's, it's a it's really hard to do you know and as we talked about in the last segment that this is all playing out in the presidential campaign and this is obviously an issue that a lot of voters 
care deeply about. And uh, Isaac, you have a story out today about just the tension here within the Democratic Party. And uh, there's the headline of your story there, Biden aides grapple with 2024 outreach as Israel-Hamas war exposes cracks in coalition. Is there tension or frustration between the White House and the president's handling this issue and what the campaign wants the president to do? Well, look, as I'm going to be saying, Israel for Joe Biden is not an issue about politics. He feels it in his core. It goes to things that he thinks about, about right and wrong. And he is not going to back away from his support of Israel, even if you told him that it's a political liability. That being said, some people even in the West Wing have told him it is looking like a political liability. And so what you've seen out of the White House is this push to connect with uh, Muslim Americans and Arab Americans that has been off to a somewhat rocky start. Uh, for example, someone told me that one of the first emails that went out to a list of their Muslim supporters was addressed salams with an S at the end, right? Just like even that typo and figuring out what to do. But they have been working at it and really connecting with a lot of people that way, starting to build that up. They've also been reaching out to a lot of Jewish supporters around the country. I think it's important here, we sometimes talk only about where the critics are and where the opponents are, but there are a lot of people who seem to have been drawn to connect to Biden on this, a lot of Jewish Americans you talk to. And we can think about this as states that have really large Muslim populations mm -hmm. like Michigan and Minnesota yeah. and Georgia, but those states also have large Jewish populations. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's all these things in the balance. So, yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought both of those things up. First, just look at the, how the polls, what the polls are saying. Quinnipiac poll, do you approve how Israel responded to the attack? Democrats, just 33% support Israel's response to the Hamas terror attack. Now, 49% say no, according to a recent Quinnipiac poll. Then you talk about the battleground states, Michigan being so critical. This is one that even Democrats recognize it could slip away depending on how Biden handles this issue. Uh, one of our colleagues, Diane Gallagher, was out in Michigan, spoke to a number of voters, uh, Muslim voters, and Arab voters in Michigan, and asked them about Joe Biden. If you would have asked me a month ago, I would have said absolutely 100%, no doubt about it. But honestly, the past few weeks have changed everything. I will gladly turn in an empty ballot. If the election was to be held today, I can't promise you that he will get five votes from Arab Americans in the city of Dearborn. Look, I mean, if, that's my home state. And it's shocking and important for any uh, political team to realize that there is a large, very active Muslim population in Michigan, and there is an equally large, very active, very politically conscious uh, uh, Jewish population in Michigan. And there's no better uh, sort of uh, petri dish for uh, sentiment among those two groups. I also just want to like point out here that for Republicans, this topic uh, is not really international relations. It is a question about foreign uh, about. Biden's competency. So when they attack him on his handling of this crisis uh, in Gaza, when they attack him on Afghanistan, they all want to tie this to whether Biden is up to the job, up to handling a major world crisis like this. It's, and they think that that is effective for the voters that they're uh, reaching out to this election cycle. And there's been one Michigan Democratic Congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib. Uh, she is someone who has gotten a lot of attention. She's Palestinian-American. She has not directly condemned the Hamas attack. She also uh, had this warning for the president as well. Mr. President, the American people are not with you on this one. We will remember in 2024.
I mean, one of the things there that she talks about, from the river to the sea, she calls it an aspirational call for freedom. It's widely viewed as an anti-Semitic remark, too. I mean, it's an anti-Israel. Yeah, anti-Israel. I mean, common yes. rallying cry for Hamas to get rid of the, the Jewish state. Democrats, how are Democrats dealing with Rashida Tlaib right now? Well, there was an effort led by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has her own history of anti-Semitic remarks, to censure her, which is a formal reprimand in the House. No Democrat supported that. Even Democrats who have been critical of Tlaib behind closed doors, or even publicly in some cases. But they really took issue with the fact that it was Marjorie Taylor Greene leading that resolution. But this is, Tlaib has really come to be the face of the divide in the Democratic Party over Israel. It's a generational divide. I think that's also what mm-hmm. you're seeing reflected in how Biden has been handling the situation. But I will say there has been a slight shift in tone from Democrats on the Hill who were largely giving Israel the benefit of the doubt when it came to their military strategy. Now they are saying things like, well, maybe this could backfire. We need a more surgical approach. We need a pause for humanitarian aid to get in. And you are seeing that somewhat reflected in the way Biden is now talking about this. He is mentioning the civilian toll more and more that he speaks publicly. So I I do think there is an effort to try to nod to that side of the party, uh, but it has created real divisions in the Democratic as we've seen. But look, Rashida Tlaib, she's Palestinian-American. She's been very clear where she is on this issue for a long time. I'm not sure that she demonstrates where this divide is at this point. Uh, As much as, for example, on Friday night, there was a big gathering of Obama campaign alumni in Chicago. Uh, Thousands of them were there. And he did a live interview about uh, the Pod Save America. And he spoke on uh, talking about uh, the occupation in Israel. He talked about anti-Semitism, talked about all these things. When he talked about anything that was defending Israel or condemning anti-Semitism, there was silence in the room. When he talked about how there needs to be uh, a Palestinian state, there needs to be a change in what's going on in Gaza, there were cheers and applause. That is one measure of where things are, at least among some parts of the Democratic Party. Yeah, so much will continue to play out as this war carries on. And coming up for us... He's one of the most famous people on Capitol Hill, but for all the wrong reasons. My exclusive interview with Congressman George Santos, next. But you acknowledge, though, fabricating large portions of your life. So why did that happen? I'm just wondering, people want to know why. Why did he do it? We've gone through this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. 
Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. A year ago, few ever heard the name George Santos. But after winning a house seat in 2022, much of his life was exposed as a lie. He became a joke on late night TV and a pariah in Congress. And when he arrived in Washington 10 months ago, he wanted nothing to do with those of us in the Capitol Hill press corps. Mr. Santos, why did you lie to your voters about your qualifications, your past, being Jewish? What has the speaker said to you, Mr. Santos? When you stop lying, you're reporting. I'll start talking. So, wait, you actually were on a volleyball team? Is that right? Wait, was the, what was the source of your funds, sir? What was the source of that money? So, you said you explained the change in the campaign finance filings. You have not done that yet. Why is that? Why haven't you explained? Why haven't you explained that yet? He has a very different attitude now. He agreed to sit with me on Friday, even as he's facing 23 federal criminal charges related to, among other things, how he raised and spent money for his campaign. He has pleaded not guilty. He did not to win last week when the House defeated a resolution to expel him from Congress, but that could be short-lived. The House Ethics Committee is nearly done with its own investigation of Santos, and that could trigger another expulsion vote. He told me that even if he loses that vote, he'll run again in 2024. So if they expel you and then they put someone else in the seat, you're going to run in 2024. Absolutely. Uh Can you win a primary given all these things that are lined up against you? Yes. And the general election. This is a a Biden-leaning district and you have all these issues against you. Could I have won the general election last time? Nobody said I could, but I It was a different situation. No, no, I understand, but elections are tricky. There's no predetermined outcome. What is the rationale for running for re-election? Why should a voter entrust you with two more years? Manu, What have you done to deserve re-election? I am the most conservative New Yorker in the entire delegation with the most conservative record of all my colleagues. I'm the only one that if you look at my campaign website and the campaign promises as far as policies I made, I haven't broke a single promise. You look at all my other colleagues, they all break promises. They all bend and vote one way or another to benefit whatever special interest is in this state. But they're not facing federal charges. That's fine. But here's at the end of the day, the people are sick. I go back home. I go into... You call it rallies, protests. I, I, I'm in the fray with them. They love it because I represent their voice here. They like the fact that I'm a scrappy guy. I come here, I do my job, and they feel like it's one of them here. So the, on these charges, is there any chance you would accept a plea deal? Uh, I'm not exploring any of that right now, right? The, those conversations uh, are yet to be had. Uh, but they may happen. I, I don't know. I don't know. Right now, I'm I'm pretty focused on my defense and putting together my defense with my attorney. But you're not ruling out a plea deal. What from what I'm I, hearing? I'm not from saying you. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm not ruling out. As of right now, it's it's not on the table. Yeah, but as of tomorrow, it could be. I suppose. Like I said, I don't know. The feds are saying uh, that you and your campaign treasurer conspired to make it appear your campaign was hitting fundraising benchmarks to get on the radar of GOP officials. You say, did you know about this? Manu, I never, ever submitted or even looked at a single report. So but obviously, ha- yeah. for me to sit here and unpack this for you, yeah. I, I essentially ruined my defense. Sure, right? I, I understand so that. I can, just, I can just tell you this uh, to, to save you yeah. the time. Yeah. As far as all the allegations, remember how a campaign works. I'm a candidate. 
Candidates do not handle money. Candidates do not handle finances. Candidates do not handle filings. I don't even know what the FEC filing system looks like to give you a, a, a well-rounded. But they say that you have, they have text messages and emails where you guys are talking about all of this. I would love to see them. Do you not believe what it says in it's the indictment? It's not that I don't believe. It's really easy to take things out of context. Because one of the things they say is that there's a $500,000 loan that you made. I made, oh, I made $500,000. But you had $8,000 in your bank account, and there's, say there's no evidence that that like $500,000 I, 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 I made, I made, I can guarantee you that I made the financial loans to my campaign that are on the record. So, but even though you didn't have the money in your account, so I, where did you, where did that I, come I'm from? I'm very interest, interested to know uh, where they get that information. So, from, so. that's, that you're saying is I, I'm completely. Defend, I'm totally going to defend that. Yep. 100%. Because Nancy Marks, your treasurer, she said in court, I did these things in agreement with co-conspirator number one, that's you, for his benefit to obtain money for the campaign by artificially inflating his funds to meet thresholds set by National Political Committee. So why would she say that? People will say whatever they have to say, cut whatever deal they have to cut in order to save their hide. And I, this isn't surprising. I don't know why people so are so So she's making stuck. this up in court? I, I, I'm not accusing her of anything. All I'm saying is she has her story. I'm going to come with my facts and I'm going to tell, tell my side of the Because they're saying that you got in credit card information from donors and jacked up their contributions beyond the federal campaign finance limits. And I, I don't even, I, didn't even, I, I can I didn't, show you the citations. No, no, I, I've here. seen the citations, yeah. Manu. I, I didn't even handle uh, donations. A lot of that happened in our campaign. And whenever people would say, oh, uh, it got charged again, we would refund them. It's on the reports, sure. at least to the best of my knowledge. They're saying the donor contacted you directly. Yeah, look. I'm not going to get into specifics. I can say that I did not handle uh, donations in my campaign. Because in one case, it says it even went to your personal bank account. Roughly yeah. $12,000, you bought designer goods, you benefit yourself with a donor's so essentially, money. Essentially, everything I do, everything I've ever spent uh, in my account is going to be deemed as, oh my God, George Santos stole money. George Santos bought designer clothes. That's what I buy. I mean, I've been a client of, of the same stores for many years. And if you go and you go through my closet, you'll see. It's not like I amassed and bought all my clothes, all my shoes uh, in the last uh, campaign. Okay. So there, so obviously you're, you're very much denying that. Are you also, you had mentioned that perhaps there was some issue with the jobless benefits because the allegation, the indictment is that you defrauded them, pretended you were unemployed. There were $24,000 in jobless benefits. Is that true? Look, I'm not going to get into the to the, to the the nitty gritty of, of the pandemic. Um, I, I beg I beg defer to say that the entire country can get indicted, I'm pretty sure, based on how crazy times were. So, but you admit there was something amiss. I'm not admitting amiss. anything. I, I'm, I'm yeah. saying that I did, in my defense, what I think I was qualified for. Now, Let's make this very clear. In any other circumstance, a person that goes and takes a, a unemployment check and then God, God willing, like, oh, no, you actually didn't qualify because you you quit. You were not terminated. So you didn't qualify for benefits. You don't indict that person. You know what? Every single time it happens, they go ahead and deduct it from your taxes. They they put a lien on you. Oh, you can't take unemployment benefits. Oh, oh. every year they'll, they'll just chip away at it slowly. I got indicted. Mm -hmm. So just just put that on the scale. So you're saying this this is a common error. Twenty four thousand dollars is a lot of money. I'm not saying common error, and I'm not saying twenty four thousand dollars is not a lot of money. I'm just saying there's people out there who have gone through this process of overtaking a check or two or whatever the case is, and then just having to pay it back. But nobody gets it criminally indicted. It's crazy. In the indictment, it says, and this is a serious part about filing false reports with the house allegedly. Financial, they said you made up your income. 
And that could be a problem for your ethics problem. What happened? I mean, did you not list your income properly here? All I, all I, can, say, all I can say is, first, no, that's not true. Second, uh, were there mistake made on those forms? I'm, now I know they were. Uh, was I, were they malicious? No. And I'm a new candidate and I'm sorry that like mistakes were made, but it's another, here's another thing. Every time somebody suspects there's a mistake on your ethics report, you know what happens? The ethics committee reaches out and said, hey, this looks funky. Guess what happened? That never happened. So you acknowledge mistakes were made on your I've income. acknowledged that, not my income, on the forms. Yeah. I've, I've acknowledged that, that. Manu, I, did, I didn't understand the forms. That's just plain and simple. But you filled out those forms. With some help, but most, most of them, yes. I wonder just as, as running a campaign, you know, you're putting this a lot on the treasurer. You're the chief of the campaign. That's not true. You're not, but you're in charge, right? No, you're, that's you know? not true. Should the buck stop at you is do, my question. Well, the buck should stop at the candidate. That's true. I want to take you back to the scene on the House floor this week. It was so intense. You know, you heard from your colleagues going after you in very, very personal terms. Before we get into the details of it, what was that moment like for you? Oh, you know, that moment for me was, was I, I, at that point, I understood politics. It doesn't matter what side you're on. It's about political expedience. Uh, and I understood that wholeheartedly. So the New point. York freshman Republicans yeah, I, I, are doing this for... It's all political. They wanted to go on the record. that they, they so much so reject me that they did this on the House floor so they can save face locally back home. I'm not going to sit here and continuously debate uh, my entire life. Look, as a human being, have I made mistakes? Have I... And have I owned up to them? Yes, I have. But it feels like everybody wants to obsess over that. I, I wish you But it's hope. kind of important, right? Well, like well, what you said important. about your past. No, look, mean... it's important, Manu. It would be also important if every single person in this building with a glass house stopped throwing stones at other people and started looking at themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of things that these guys don't talk about themselves that they would hate for me to come here and sit and talk to you sure. about. There's so many more questions that can be asked, but you all insist on going down the same path. But it's important because it's your important. voters, your voters thought they were electing Manu, one person. Nobody elected me. Nobody elected me because I played volleyball or not. Nobody elected me because I graduated college or not. People elected me because I said I'd come here to fight the swamp. I'd come here to lower inflation, create more jobs, make life more affordable, and the commitment to America. That's why people voted for anybody. To say that they voted based on anybody's biography, I can beg you this. Nobody knew my biography. Nobody opened my biography who voted for me in the campaign. Would you, would you acknowledge, though, fabricating large portions of your life? So why did that happen? I'm just wondering, people want to know why. Manu, why did he do Manu, it? we've gone through this. I've gone through this on Pierce Morgan. I've gone through sure. this with Eric But it's Burnett. still a question. Like, it's I still get a question. It. How about we talk? Look. We, are, we know all but the things But can you just answer did. me, but why, but why? I've already told you this. It's insecurity, stupidity. I don't know. Look, I'm human. We make mistakes. I've apologized and I will continue to apologize profusely for this and, and with remorse. I, look, I am the first one to jump and say, I messed up. I made a mistake. Let me fix this. Tell me what this year has been like for you. Hell. 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 Hell in the most profound way. And he also said he did not regret running for office. Okay, up next, the new House Speaker sets the stage for a huge battle with the White House. But can Republicans get on the same page? Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Yellow. We're the creators and showrunners. 
Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. New House Speaker Mike Johnson has started to detail how he plans to govern after weeks of GOP turmoil by keeping the House GOP united, even if their bills have no chance of becoming law. He pushed through an Israel aid package with cuts to the IRS and without money for Ukraine, setting the stage for a huge showdown with the Senate and the White House. And oh yes, a government shutdown looms at the end of next week, and both chambers are nowhere near a plan to avert it. Of course, Johnson is facing anger also from hard-right members who are calling for a much more aggressive approach with the White House and with Democrats. Republican voters across the country are sick and tired of Republicans because they never do anything to hold uh, hold this government accountable. Republicans go out on the campaign trail and go on TV and do their five-minute hearing videos and, and post up on social media and say all this garbage about how they're going to fight it and stop it. Well, I feel like many of the American people that think that Republicans in Congress completely fail them. I feel the same way, and I'm a Republican member of Congress. Now, Green also warned Johnson that if he agrees to a deal for billions in aid to Ukraine, the MAGA base, she said, will be, quote, absolutely furious. Sungmin and Melanie are back with me. I mean, the, the big question for Johnson, he got that first bill done, but he has to compromise in order mm-hmm. to get a deal with the Senate and with the White House to keep the government open, open potentially aid to Ukraine. How do we think he's going to deal with that more complicated issues of compromise, consensus and deal cutting? Right. Well, Speaker Johnson has made clear that at least out the gate, his priority is passing bills that can pass the House GOP. He doesn't want to rely on Democratic support. And he's not even taking into account what Senate Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell are saying. He could have had a massive blowout bipartisan vote if he just had a standalone Israel bait aid package. Instead, he conditioned it upon IRS spending cuts and made it a partisan exercise. The question, of course, is when is he going to compromise? Will he compromise? And can he do that without sparking a right-wing revolt? That was the challenge that Kevin McCarthy and, faced, and he'll have the same problem. Exactly. Both on keeping the government open and potentially aid to Ukraine. He suggested you could compare aid to Ukraine with changes to make stricter border policies. Marjorie right. Taylor Greene, for instance, would not accept that. This is how the Republicans view uh, support for Ukraine, according to a recent Gallup poll. Uh, 62% in October of 2023 say the U.S. is doing too much to support Ukraine. That is up 12 points in the past year. I mean, this is the real challenge for the White House Sunman is about the Republican divisions on Ukraine as they're saying this is necessary now to support them in this war against Russia. Right. It is strategically why the White House wanted and many Democrats and even some Republicans want to group all of that aid together, aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, along with some uh, changes to the border, changes to border money and also Taiwan as well. But you do see because uh, they, they kind of see this as the last sort of big package that could move uh, before the 2024 elections when we know that if this continues on and if, if you try to have a vote on this in an election year, it would become much more toxic. But it's certainly causing a lot of tensions within the White House and against uh, Speaker Johnson right now. I wrote about this in my story this morning, kind of detailing the White House's uh, growing relationship to to the extent that they have one with uh, Speaker Johnson. And the first big clash that Speaker Johnson had with White House officials was in that situation room briefing the day after he became Speaker. He made it clear to them in this two-hour briefing that Israel had to get separated out from uh, uh, from Ukraine aid. And this got a lot of pushback from the administration officials, Dem lawmakers, and even some Republicans in the room. But Johnson is unapologetic at this point, And I think that's kind of how he's going to be governing for at least a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? There's still an unknown quantity. Yeah, and the relationship between him and Mitch McConnell is also interesting. They had not even met before Mike Johnson became speaker, which is pretty remarkable. But Mitch McConnell, for him, Ukraine aid is a legacy issue. And it has put him out of step with members of his own party, which Mm -hmm. is kind of an unusual spot to see Mitch McConnell. The problem for Johnson is that without Republicans in the Senate unified behind him and his strategy, it makes it harder for Johnson to pursue that approach. So we'll see what happens. Uh, But time is running out, and there's a sense that all of this might get wound up together with the government funding deadline, November 17th. It could all become another big cliff for them. Yeah, the Senate Republican, House Republican dynamic. We'll see how that plays out as they avoid a government shutdown. Can they avoid government shutdown? We'll see. Thank you both. Coming up. More from my interview with Congressman George Santos as he tries to dispel doubts about one of his most controversial claims. Congressman Santos now admits that he's never graduated from college, wasn't a volleyball star, and did not work at Goldman Sachs. But he told me he still plans to prove that one of his most seemingly outlandish claims is actually true. That despite being raised Roman Catholic, his mother's family is Jewish, and his grandparents did flee Ukraine during the Holocaust. He made the claim about his heritage several times throughout his campaign, once referring to himself in a campaign document as a proud American Jew. But last December, CNN and other outlets reviewed genealogy sites that showed his maternal grandparents were born in Brazil and found no evidence that they ever lived in or fled from Europe. But here's what he told me on Friday. It's true. It's true. Oh, it's true. Uh-huh. I, I took, I, I spent the last 10 months DNA hiring genealogists to actually. Because I don't think there's any, is there, are there documentation of this? Oh, that's what I spent the last 10 months doing, putting together. But unfortunately, Ukraine is in the middle of a freaking war. And my grandfather comes from Ukraine. So this is this is the biggest uh, uh, lift that I've had to do my entire life. But that's something I'm going to I'm going to die. I'm going to prove before I die, mm-hmm. because the reality is I never said I was Jewish. I would always joke for years. I say I'm Jewish. I was raised Roman Catholic. I said that in the middle of RJC just last year, a year from today, just last year uh, in Las Vegas. I joked on the mic, said I am, after all, Jewish. Joking, everybody thought it was funny. Everybody knew what I was talking about, where I was coming from. And then for me to sit here and be like, wait, this is something I've always made very clear. I'm Catholic, come from a Jewish family. Here's my Jewish family's history. Why is this now a problem? I'm but not- you, just to make clear, you've, you have documented proof that your grandparents fled the Holocaust. I am working on finishing getting the last pieces of it, specifically the piece in Brazil, where they go to Brazil and then have documents forged so that they can blend in and, and all of that. Mm. And, and once I have everything ready, I will allow the same company I hired to submit the report to the press uh, with glee, because that is going to be that one thing that I'm going to be able to say, I never intended to hurt anybody. I never wanted anybody to feel like I misrepresented myself or my family's heritage. That's I, I will not stop working until I have every single part of that put together. That's it for Inside Politics Sunday. Up next, State of the Union with Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. Thanks again for sharing your Sunday morning with, with us. And happy birthday to my twins, Sonia and Sanjay. Early eighth birthday tomorrow. See you next time. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.